0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 and the final episode of the 20 years of C327 podcast. A podcast that, at times, has been a massive ball ache, eh? but so worth it to hear all the stories and forgotten tales from all of the guests I've had on. I'm super grateful to everyone that's taken time out to join me for a chat and a beer, subscribe or shared the pod, or even just listened to the odd episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and maybe, just maybe, it might have even rekindled your love for our shitty little band from East Suffolk. As always, I'm your host, Richard Trigg, and in today's final episode, I'm chatting with me. Well, kind of. I asked all the previous guests, and some guests that unfortunately, I didn't manage to get on to send me a question that they'd like to have asked. So expect around an hour of me just rambling on, rambling on, rambling on. I'm sorry. Remember, tickets are on sale now for the comeback show on the 17th of December at Lowestoft Town Football Club. Don't hang around, they really are going quick. So get yours now by heading to seethrough27.com. Okay, for one final time, buckle up and get ready to get bored. It's Richard Trigg, me, on the 20 years of See Through 27 podcast.
1: I think you've done an incredible job, Richard, on this podcast, series of podcasts. These questions have been uh, just really cool. Um, really enjoyed sort of travelling back down memory lane, all the nostalgia from all of those times years ago, remembering back to when uh, you'd be writing the latest riff, um, banging that down the phone, and we'd be working on tracks and stuff when we were sort of back in our teens. Hence the reason why you were known as Richie Riffs. Um, but my question importantly, I suppose, is of all the riffs that you've written in See Through, um, new or songs past, of those riffs, which one's your favourite? Which one's your all-time, like, favouritest riff to play? Um, which one do you enjoy playing the most? Um, and your reasons why? It'd be great to know.
0: Ace, um, thanks for that, Paul. Um, for everyone that didn't know, that was Paul Emery, uh, drummer of See Through Twenty Seven, and he's right. I mean, I, I had no idea that anyone referred to me as Richie Riff, so I would take that with a pinch of salt. But he is right about um, phoning him up and playing riffs down the phone. And when we first started sort of playing together, in I guess. Ninety seven ish, I think. That's what we'd do. We'd write a couple of riffs and uh I'd phone up Paul and play him down the phone and see if he liked him and that's kind of how he constructed songs. It sounds mental. Um Favourite riffs though. Well when we first started the band, Flighty Paul and myself had come out of kind of a riffy based rock band type thing. And it's 2001, new metal or the the worst part of new metal was really coming through. Um And Johnny and I were a little bit conscious of making sure we didn't fall into that. We never wanted to be new metal or thought of as new metal. That wasn't what we were trying to do. We weren't trying... To be that, um, and I think we actually got away with it. Really, I think we only ever had one review that maybe compared us to to something new metal. It was um Crazy Town, was it Crazy Town, something like that. Um, but that was the only one, so so that was good. But I think part of that was in those original songs, I was conscious of not putting riffs in. There, there, there are no big riffs in those original songs. Um, as riffy as it really gets i suppose is that guitar part at the start of 77th which actually is still up there in one of my favorite riffs um it's a shame about the rest of the song but if i could rewrite it um i would definitely still use that riff um but favorite riffs um in see-through i suppose you can't really look at anything pre-radio n um 'Cause it wasn't until then that we started to to write with riffs. And I think that's kind of when we found our feet when we were throwing in riffs. And we were confident enough that we had our own sound that we didn't sound like new metal. When we started writing for Radio N, that's when we really started to to, to throw in the riffs like shape up, Radio N, Tooth for a Tooth. Um we took got some banging riffs, I think. Um Tooth for a Tooth with the delayed guitar. It's a bit different. Um, it's not really riffy, but I suppose it's a riff. Um, shape up or shit out, classic kind of riff. But my favourite riff that I've written for See Through, I think is a combination of the bass line and the guitar part of How Many You Kiss. So you've got that kind of nylon string um, repeated guitar line that Flatty plays. And then the bass line, the dum 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 dum, and that I think is my favorite riff. Although I don't play it, I think it's up there as my favorite riff in "See Through." That's the kind of I, I ju- you judge riffs by: are they strong as the top line? You know, are they something that someone would sing on their own? Um, that is the one that people go, "Oh, you know that song goes dum dum dum." Dum, da, 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 dum. and I think that shows the prowess of that riff. So yeah, that's my favorite riff I've written. I do like the riff for Under Milkwood, which Liam currently plays, which was originally on guitar too. There's something very bouncy and simple about that, and that's kind of got a little bit of that as well, where people would would sing that line. Riffs, favorite riffs to play. I, I'm all, I'm always a big fan, in no, no matter what band I've been in to have cool riffs that sound cooler or harder to play than they are because I'm really into performance based stuff like I love the performance side of it so if it's simple enough to play where you can rock out or you know whatever it may be um show off essentially I suppose um I'm into it so there's a couple of those moments on the on the new record for sure um there's a lot of riffs, and it's hard to pick. So, honourable mentions for all of them, really, but How Many You Kiss is probably my favourite my favourite my favorite riff. So, thanks for that, Paul. And we'll hear from Paul again in a bit, because I asked everyone to send in a question to me, and Paul sent about eight or nine. But, yeah, we'll hear from Paul again. And it, it wouldn't really be the 20 Years of See-Through podcast without uh, little sound bites from Paul. So you can expect that.
2: What's up y'all. It's C327 keyboardist Liam here. This is my short but sweet contribution to the final podcast, and it's been a terrific series of podcasts. So, well done, trig for all, all the work. And um, it's, it's particularly great to hear Rouseys and Annie's. The other day, really enjoyed those ones. um I was looking through some photos um, recently, a folder from two thousand and six, and I think we played a gig in a place called Lark in the Park, which is actually the name of a pub in London. And um, It it was a great gig, there were some great other bands on as I remember and some of our most legendary fans were there, for example Claire Perry and and Chris Morgan as well. Um, There's a picture of me um, sitting next to Claire and I'm sort of necking a a, a black pint with um, some aviators on and um, I I remember that being a particularly messy night and um, stumbling around London um, which was for me a classic see-through thing to do. Um, My question for you Trig, is... Do you think you would have had the time or inclination to write the new record had the the pandemic or the lockdown never have happened? Look forward to hearing your answer, mate. And um, yeah, love to everyone and see you in Lowstuff, Lowstuff
0: Town Football Club. Bye-bye. Thanks, Liam. Um, It's so great to hear those little stories. Um, And I guess that's the highlight of doing this podcast, really. Um, I'd completely forgotten about Lark in the Park until you mentioned it and then brought it all back I remember what the front of the venue looked like I remember what the weather was like when we arrived and it was really great to see those images that you that you sent across as well I'll I'll probably put them up when we post about this episode great to see people like Chris Morgan again and and that and yeah I guess that's kind of the best thing about this podcast really just kind of sharing those little stories and and kind of taking the time to Taking the time to remember those bits. Um, so nice one for that. To your question, though, do I think I'd had the time and inclination to write it? Well, for me, I actually had less time during the pandemic because I was still working, but I was then also homeschooling my little boy, Alfred, and I was trying to write see-through stuff. The inclination really came from that first song, which uh, is out in the world now, Learn to Love the Bomb. And when we finished that, that excitement that I know you felt, Liam, um, I think we all did, really. Everyone was kind of buzzing that we'd created something that felt felt like see-through, but was modern, you know, and we'd actually kind of finished it, which was pretty exciting for us. Um, I think that really was the driving force for me to finish the record. And I think I'd have pressed on and found the time to do it regardless i suppose the biggest impact or the biggest effect that the pandemic had was really on the way that i wrote with johnny having to revert back to that kind of original way where i'd send him the track he'd record the track and i'd pick up these cds etc that was the biggest change because i think sometimes you can lose focus if you're in a room together trying to write especially if we were all in a room you can lose a little bit of that focus as a lot of cooks so just having the pandemic kind of force us to write in a very isolated or singular way gave each of us the opportunity to truly really focus on our what we were doing, our parts, without that pressure or time constraint, I suppose. So that was probably the impact of that on the writing. But for me, I think I'd have found the time because I was buzzing off finishing that Learn to Love the Bomb track. So yeah, thanks for that, Liam.
1: Swoosh time, podcast time, see-through style.
0: Word up,
2: see-through peoples. That's Ben here. Um, my question is mainly for Trig. I wanted to know how long it took to make the Lego
0: video for the track running. Peace out. Bye. Thanks, Ben. And thanks for coming on the podcast. It was great catching up and talking about old times. And talking about the show the comeback show on the 17th um that was that was exciting to hear Dacra's plans and just great to hang out again after after all this time so yeah the lego video the short story really is i was in the shower i felt a bit creative i know what you're thinking um but i know i definitely just felt creative and Alfred had mentioned to me, my son Alfred had mentioned to me about wanting to do a music video and we'd done some animation together with his Lego characters um, for his friend, who's a girl, not allowed to call her a girlfriend. So I kind of had that in my head. Oh, it'd be cool to do this kind of Lego inspired animation for one of the new tracks, but we obviously didn't have any of the new tracks. So I thought, I'd have a look through the back catalogue and see if there was something that it could work with. Then I remembered the running track, which we'd done in the Under Milkwood sessions back in 2013. So sort of figured out roughly how I was going to do it in the shots that I needed to create and set about uh, creating the characters and the, the sort of staging of it throughout the entire day. Um, Gemma came back from work in the evening and she said, have, have you had a good day? Um, and I said, not really. I'm pretty stressed out. And she, she, she said, why are you stressed out? And I said, well, I had this idea to, to make a frigging Lego music video. And it's taken me all day just to create these characters and make the mini guitars and the staging and the backdrop and all that. And she said, oh, well, don't worry about it. As long as you've been creative, I'm happy. Um, so that's a true story. So if you've got a wife or girlfriend that's not that supportive, um, probably have a word. Um, by all means, um, reference my wife, um, who is Ace. So it took the whole day, the whole of, I think it was a Friday, just creating the scene. I didn't do any shooting at all. And the lights started to go. So I brought in these spotlights and I took a few shots um, and sent them around to, to the boys who were kind of really stoked about it. And it was cool to see it. And I, was, I sort of slept on it and thought, this is going to look really cool. So that was a whole day sort of planning the shots, setting it all up. And then I spent about a day, a day and an evening shooting the shots. I quickly found, though, that after about three hours of doing one shot that I had, maybe 30 seconds but because I was shooting at 4K I came up with the plan that I could then take segments out of the same shot over and over again so it was the same shot but a different part of it um, so it gave me more more to use the biggest the hardest sort of shots to do were the, there's like a group choreographed dancing shot that was the the most time consuming bit to do so that took me yeah that took me a day and a night to do the shots and then I probably spent about three or four days trying to edit it together I suppose so in total Ben in answer to your question probably about five days okay my question is I feel like I'm a songwriter I have always thought of you as a guitarist but me and you pretty much wrote this whole album
2: and I've got such a great appreciation for your songwriting now. Who are your top three songwriters? And you're not allowed to say Simon or Garfunkel.
0: Not your guitar influences. Who are your songwriting influences? That's my question. Thank you, Johnny. Um, for those who didn't know, that was Johnny Leach. Front person, frontman, singer, rapper, lyricist of see through 27 and it's nice to see that you've listened to the instruction that i've requested um of a nice little introduction a nice little anecdote and a nicely recorded question so thank you johnny so three songwriting influences well i think when i approach writing stuff for see through it definitely the prodigy would have to be in there um that kind, of, the kind of way that you have an intro, and a build, maybe a bit of a breakdown, and then a big end. It's kind of how I approach see-through stuff. That hasn't really ever changed. Is it a song? I'm not sure. Um, but I'd, so I'd say like the Prodigy, the way that they craft their songs, is certainly an influence. Um, also. I reference Beastie Boys quite a lot. They seem to have a knack of throwing bits where they want to throw them and doing them how they wanted to do them. And I like that. So I kind of sometimes reference that if it's getting a bit formulated. Um, so I guess they're a small influence. Um, also, Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins. I love the way that he's always been able to sort of take a nostalgic vibe or a song he kind of can grab a moment and sort of bottle it into a song which I love and always strive to do. Um I think we kind of maybe have done it with put it there off the new record. Certainly done it on a couple of songs in the past but but the way that he approaches it big riffs Very gnarly, but beautiful top lines, clever lyrics. Um, Definitely an influence. Um, Who else? Maybe the death tones for me as well. I love the way that they can create this sonic wall um, and power, but yet put a very soft, sparkly top line or vocal on top of it. And the way that they use synths, Um, and soundscapes to kind of pad out and create moods within the songs Um, definitely a big influence Uh, especially if you look at the the new record and songs like You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat where on the third verse it's it's almost a wall of sound but yet we've got sort of a verse on top of it Um, older songs as well like How Men You Kiss that kind of big wall of sound Um, so they're definitely an influence but all-time favourite writers, other than Simon and Garfunkel, of course, um, Fleetwood Mac, um, Noel Gallagher, '90s Oasis. I mean, it's pretty high up there for me. So yeah, that's that's kind. Of, I know that's not three, but there you go. That's that. So thanks for that, Johnny. Controversial question here. Who's
1: the most irritating member of c Twenty Seven that you find to be the most absolutely bloody pain in the ass ever?
0: Thanks, Paul. It's Johnny. Next question.
1: Also, another thing is obviously we spent quite a few years uh, gigging here and there. We've been in vans up and down the bloody country. Um, so you're quite uh, a dab hand at the uh, super kind of snack stop experience. So... What would you define as your ultimate on the road gigging snack stop snack, Richard? What is it? I want to know. What is it? An egg and bacon sandwich? Is it a pasty? I don't know. I know. I know. Back in the day, remembering back to everywhere we'd go, you'd have to stop for a ginsters. Um, had to be a ginsters. You wouldn't. You wouldn't accept anything
0: else.
1: Um, but uh, yeah. Um, I think I've answered my own question
0: actually what a stupid question it's not a stupid question Paul. actually it's a wonderful question and thank you for taking the time to record it for me Um, anyone who's been on a long journey knows the importance of breaking that journey up and having a decent snack and because I still go out with bands I still tour a lot my tastes have somewhat changed but back in the day the importance of a snack just can't be underestimated so let's have a look. Egg and bacon, yes, but it has to be a triple. The, the, the key words here are longevity. You can't fuck about if you're on a four-hour journey. Why have a sandwich that's going to last six minutes? You could probably eke it out and get eight out of it. So let's get a triple egg and bacon. Happy days. Um, you need something a bit, a bit juicy, a bit pastry-y. And like you said, for me, it's always going to be some kind of pasty. Um, I'm not really bothered hot or cold. Sausage rolls are a different matter, but a pasty... They all taste a bit like shit, but a Ginster's, yeah, I mean, not so much now. There's a lot of competition now, but back in 2002, you're looking for a Ginster's. You don't want some kind of budget 49 beer. You want to be going for the quid, the high brand, the nice premium looking thing, which back then was a Ginster's. Um, so we've got a triple, triple egg and bacon, happy days. They always slip a, a brown bread in. I don't know if you noticed that. It's a touch. I mean, it's, it's health food, isn't it? You want a nice ginster's pasty. Back in the day, you're then moving on to some kind of spicy meat, pepperoni, something like that. Hotter the better, um, just to complement that, really. Uh, in fact, I remember you and I, Paul, when we uh, were in Belgium, we hit some shop up for a, for a snack. I think it was a mid morning snack. We'd been drinking all night, I believe, and. It was just spicy meats. It was like a fucking dream come true for me. Let's get some cheap backy and some spicy meats. Lovely, all day long. Um, but yeah, back back to the van. Uh, we've got a triple sandwich. We have got a Ginster's or some other premium pasty. In fact, they used to do a lovely Scotch egg bar. Anyone remember the Scotch egg bar? Um, you yeah, haven't seen that in a while, but that, that was a touch. Something like... Something to wash it down, but you, you know... It, Something to wash it down is always good. So, looking at maybe a milkshake or a nice cup of tea. Normally, kind of a chocolate Yazoo, something like that. Not doesn't none of this thick, gooey shit. I'm not into that. Something refreshing, something that's going to really complement a reefer. Because um, after Paul and I would snack, we'd all would always reefer. Um, so that's what you're looking for: a longevity and something to complement a nice reefer. That's that was the goal. Um, of course, that's a daytime snack, and an evening snack. You're going to change that right up. Uh, it's definitely going to be a cup of tea, not a Yazoo. You're going to something. You're going to want something that's going to bring you back down um, from the high of that show, and you know, sober you up a little bit. Was was always the case, still is. As you can probably tell, get pretty excited by snack stop foods. Uh, it's a good job you didn't ask me about uh, motorway services because then I get proper excited. And just in case you were wondering, it's Fleet. Although the McDonald's has gone there. But basically, if you want the services and feel like you've gone to centre parks, Fleet in the snow. There you go.
3: Hi, Richard. It's Jess here, uh, old friend of the band and original female vocalist. Uh, on the podcast, you guys have mentioned some journeys that you've been to and from gigs. Um, including an epic cross-Europe odyssey, which sounds horrendous, frankly. Um, I've got a really nice memory to share with you of uh, us driving home from a gig and you buying me a pasty from the garage, and I think it was possibly because it was our first paid gig and you were feeling uncharacteristically flashy. Um, I have a question for you. What's your favourite journey to or from
0: a C3 gig? Well, thanks, Jess. Um, I certainly don't remember buying you, Pasty, and you're right, that is uncharacteristically like me. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, and I, I hope it was a Ginsters. I'm guessing it was a Ginsters. If it wasn't a Ginsters, um, you know, I should probably have a word of myself, really. Um, so, for those of you who don't know, before we put the band together as see 3 through, um, Johnny myself and Jess were creating these tracks with no thought that it was ever going to be a live entity. We were just writing bits and bobs and we'd get Jess over to sing on bits and sometimes we'd get Johnny over to rap on bits and that's kind of how those original tracks started and led to the track Beautiful Sky which there's a little bit of history about in the promo vid for the beautiful Sky P.A. beer. If you want to find out more about that song, head over to YouTube, Instagram, whichever, Facebook, and have a watch that video. But that first original song, which started it all, came from Johnny, myself, and Jess dicking about with a computer, really. Jess was a really fundamental cog in the wheel of C327 back in 2001, and even did the first few shows with us so thanks Jess for that because I don't think that we would have created those songs and Be Where We Are Without You so nice one but favourite journey to or from a show that's a really hard one uh, a lot of the journeys to shows blend into to one kind of horrendous journey um, they used to involve us hiring vans we never had our own van we'd just hire one and then the Soundhouse, a place where we used to rehearse and they just used to wipe our arse, basically, um, got a a van that they could hire out to bands. That was the plan. They just didn't like hiring it out to us. Um, that's how much of a pain in the arse we were. Nonetheless, they did. Um, so a lot of the journeys then went into this big van and we'd take, we used to drag stuff out of skips and write flatty's name on them and we used to take a guitar, and we used to take seats, and it, it was a, a party for three hours or four hours or wherever we were going, and they all kind of blend into one. There's a couple of shows that I do remember going to. Actually, one was a meeting, and we had uh, our second demo um, called The Don Steps. We'd sent it off to a load of places, and one place we'd sent it off to was a, a label called Holier Than Thou, it turned out to be the biggest fucking waste of time and energy that would ever we'd ever put into anything. But we were young and we didn't know. And they contacted us and wanted a meeting. And they were down in Stratford upon Avon, so if you know your geography, I mean that's a good that's a good four hour four and a half hour trot. But we were excited, so we all bundled into I don't remember what we bundled into, but we drove down there. And I remember because we went early, it was really nice, uh, really nice drive. We weren't doing a show, so we didn't have loads of gear. We didn't have any anxiety about doing a show or whatever it might have been. And then on the way back after the meeting, which was a fucking waste of time, um, we called in to see some friends of ours in Leicester, as you do, on the way back from Stratford. And um, what I remember about that was, if you've ever seen Between Us, the scene where they, they shout stuff out the window and then go to drive off and get stopped by a red light, That happened to us years before in between us. Um, So you can imagine, as I'm not telling you what was shouted, it was quite bad. But um, incredibly funny and incredibly worrying at the time. But it was just a memorable journey. Another memory I have was, I think we were on our way to, I have a feeling it was in Oxford. But we were in the Soundhouse van again and everyone needed a piss and we all jumped out. And the toilet was locked or someone was in the toilet and no one could wait. So the site was six chaps on a petrol station forecourt up against the petrol station in the bushes. Just everyone was pissing in broad daylight, middle of the day. I mean, it's a quite a horrendous story, really. Um, not a wonderful memory, but just one that stands out. Another journey which springs to mind as we're talking about piss was... On the way back from Brighton, we'd been down there to do like an acoustic thing on some radio station. And it wasn't the whole band. And on the way back, we got stuck in traffic on the M25. And and Paul's always been famous for saying, no piss stops, I'm not stopping. So we were all busting for a piss saying, please stop, Paul. And we hit this traffic, which was like a, a, an interchange. I was about five or six lanes across it. And they're all full. And I think it was Johnny was like, I can't wait any longer. Paul, just let me out. I'm going to piss myself. So Paul opened the door. We all bundled out. There was literally nowhere to piss other than between cars on the motorway. But we all needed a wee so bad. It was was just happening. It was kind of like close your eyes and have a piss. And we were doing that. And I remember Johnny looked at me and he said, do you dare me to go and jump in that other car? And by this point, sorry, the Paul's car had moved up three or four spaces. I was like, "All right, I dare you." So Johnny went up to this other person's car, who we obviously didn't know, opened the door, and just jumped in. And this guy's face—he was petrified, as he would be about two in the morning. Some random person jumps into your car, and um, and <laughs> and Johnny jumps out, and he's just like, "Sorry, wrong car." I mean, that took balls. So, so good on you, Johnny. Um, but that was one that stood out. And the only other, the only other time that I remember fondly I suppose of going to a show was in 2013 when we the first comeback show where we'd all not been drinking we were all really nervous and we got a taxi I believe and I'd got yeah we got a taxi from Lowestoft to Ottenbrod and I got him to pull over at Asda with the intent of getting some money out and I got a beer and I think I said it on the podcast before I sneakily tried to have this beer and we had a no drink policy and uh, I got caught out for that. But when we got to the venue, everyone got out of the car and went into the venue. Um, apart from Johnny and I, who had this like nervous energy and we stood outside and chatted for a while about, you know, what if no one was there? And we decided to go in. And as we approached the door, the bouncer came out and said, sorry, chaps, we're we're full. And we sort of said, uh, we need to come in. We're in the band, it's playing in 20 minutes. And I think he went and validated who we were from someone and then let us in and as we got in it was so full we couldn't actually get to the stage and it was an amazing feeling really because we were so nervous about there not being anyone there to the point where there were so many people there we couldn't actually get to the stage so I suppose it's my one of my favorite memories of going to a show because of that anxiety and that anticipation and that worry and then that relief and excitement to see so many people there so yeah thanks Jess
1: Podcasting, c twenty-seven. A little bit like casting when you're birding, but with less bacon and less fish hooks.
0: Hi, this is Flaty. I play guitar and do backing vocals for c Twenty Seven, And this is my question for Trig. As one of the founders and one of the main driving forces of the band, what would you say your proudest moment is of the last 20 years of the band? Cheers. Thanks, Flay. I thought this question would be easy, but the more I thought about it, the more tricky it was. I think there's two that really stand out. And the first one is when we all had a huddle just before we played uh, the lady show back in 2013. There was a moment of togetherness and appreciation and positivity and I think we were all really proud because for once we could appreciate what we'd achieved in the years prior to that. Um, I think Liam mentioned it in his podcast too, but there, there was this moment of, yeah, just pride really, when there were so many people out there waiting to, to watch us and we'd worked really hard towards it. And uh, I think that's up there for sure. And the other one was was recently actually. And it was just after we got the masters of the new record back and I was just banging it into my ears, I had my AirPods in, I think I was doing some housework and like for a moment, I couldn't believe it was us. It was a sort of an overwhelming feeling, especially after the time it took to write and demo and, and rehearse. And I just felt, yeah, super proud of what we'd achieved. I think I messaged everyone on WhatsApp. (laughs) Um, So yeah, them two moments for me. Lady of the Lake, that moment before we played, and and recently just listening to the new record.
4: Hello Richard, it's Henry here. Thank you so much for having me on as a guest on this great podcast. I've really enjoyed reminiscing about some fun times and listening again to some really great music. And then also looking forward to your new album and the show in December. Where I really will enjoy watching Ben Rouse play. And maybe you guys too. No, I can't wait, it's gonna be good. Um, When we spoke, I mentioned that you used to be known as the director because you ran things musically and socially almost, I guess. You you were kind of the centre of a scene, a very small scene. Um, But as well as see through, you've been in a number of different bands and they've been they've had different lineups some of the members of see through have been in them some of the musical styles have been quite different so i wanted to ask to what extent the other bands you've been in have influenced your style of writing your style of playing your style of performing with see through and vice versa whether the work you've done with see through has informed what you've done with the other bands and then really what your ideal musical entity would be in terms of uh you know the music you'd be writing and how you'd be performing thank you very much
0: no thank you henry what a perfectly crafted question you've delivered to me um it's a great question and the bands i played in after the first version of See Through, totally informed this new record and this new version of See Through. Um, Most notably a band called The Crisis Kings, uh, who I was in with uh, John Martin from Crawl Blind, a chap called Riv, and my stepbrother Gaz. And the reason why it did was, I think, because I wrote all the music for The Crisis Kings, even the drums. And I wrote them all as demos and with sequence drums. But I got proper involved in crafting the whole song from start to finish and certain ways I would link certain s- sections and how I'd move between time signatures or whatever I was doing. I got really involved in doing that and it became the norm for me to write like that rather than how I previously wrote in See Through, which was uh, at that point six chaps in a room smoking and drinking and kind of shouting at each other and throwing riffs out and seeing if we could glue them together and with the Crisis Kings it was kind of a, a lot more structured writing I, it would be me on my own um writing tunes getting John round to sing on them and then uh taking it to the live room where Gaz would follow my patterns that I'd created um and even a lot of the fills or a lot of the feel of the fills, so that the sections would move between each other in the right way. And as we've done this new see-through record, that's kind of how I wrote it. So I'd have sequenced drums and I'd write it start to finish pretty much with Johnny. And when we started rehearsing it, then I was keen to get Paul to almost follow where I'd written it. Um, just at the start of that process, anyhow. Um, so it, it maintained the same feel and the same movement between sections. And so that style of writing definitely informed the new see-through record, a hundred percent. And it's a much more pleasant way to work for me. And I suppose another way that they informed this new version of see-through is is with my playing, I guess, um, especially um, the Crisis Kings, which was just one guitar. So that was just me and it was totally riftastic and I had to proper up my game playing-wise for that. And that's something that I've definitely brought to the new record in terms of playing. I suppose I'd say I've got a lot more in the tank these days. Um, yeah, so the playing, the playing things definitely, I've definitely upped the playing game.
1: Throw down your RV, get yourself comfy and listen to a little bit of see-through on podcast. Oh yeah. Hi Trig. So I remember seeing C327 at the brewery back in the day and thinking you guys would make it big. So my question to you is, are there any bands from the local music scene back in the day
0: that you saw and thought would make it? Thanks, Baker. Um, I guess so. I mean, when I first saw Crawl Blind back in 97, 98, at a Colville House skate comp, think there were four piece back then um that was a that was ace to see that was really exciting um and then i saw them again at a legendary venue which i don't think's come up on the podcast yet called fat paulies and i saw them with uh raging speedhorn uh, which is a wicked show and i guess out of anyone i thought that they would do something i mean define make it but I thought that they would go further than they did. Other than Crawl Blind, yeah, maybe a band called Head Up. um, Around the same kind of time. I guess they had a run of sort of bad luck, really. But they were a similar vein. Both those bands were sort of pre-the terminology of new metal. um, And they were both really exciting. I remember one show they did together at the Brewery, of course. And that was probably one of my favourite ever brewery shows that I've ever been to. So I guess out of everyone, I thought that probably one of those would at least do something. But, yeah, no one else really. (laughs) I didn't, I never even thought that that C3 would would do anything special. I'd be happy to have have just put a record out on a label, which I don't think has come up on the podcast, but... Um, we very nearly signed with a label called Integrity Records who had put out um, Million Dead and a lot of other cool bands at the time. And uh, they loved Radio N, what was to become Radio N. And they were keen to put the record out and and sign us and they were affiliated with Sony and it was very exciting. and, And we put on a showcase, which was the event that ended up getting us barred from the Brickies. And it was a really cool night. Um, but essentially the label kind of started disbanding or winding up at that time. I'm um, not really sure what happened, but it never it never materialised, which was really frustrating because, yeah, they were keen, we were keen, and it would have been a really good relationship, I think. Um, but, you know, these things happen, and it didn't happen. So that's probably as close as we got two inverted commas making it um, but yeah local bands yeah it's got to be Crawl Blind really head up well there was a band actually in London we played with called Nex, N-E-X and I was pretty convinced that they were going to blow up they were great um, I'm not sure if you could find them on YouTube but, but worth a look if you like your rock music they were great so yeah that's that thanks Johnny
3: Hi, this is Jules, and I am the former vocalist of See Through 27 from about 2002 to about 2003 4. And uh, this is kind of my re- recollection of my time in the band. And for me, I have really fond memories of being in the band. It was a great time in my life, it was one of the best times of my life. Um, and a sort of particular evening that really stands out for me <laughs> that was absolutely hilarious was when uh, I think it was after the gig at the Half Moon. In Putney, and we went down to Dorset randomly, just really spontaneously, like you do uh, when you're younger and you just haven't got care in the world. We we went down to Dorset after um, our our gig in London, and we went to Corfe Castle. And honestly, like it's such a bu- a beautiful village. But um, the story is kind of in my brain is just really quite funny because all I remember was um the guys just wanting to um go and walk around the castle. And, and me being a bit older at the time, um, well, older, and I was, I was just like, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. It's trespassing. And I was like, proper stressing out <laughs> as like the, the sort of older member of the band, as it were. And, um, I just remember you, just you, you were just like, oh, Julie, just stop, stop stressing, stop, stop worrying. Um, and you and Paul, I think it was just, you know, grabbed me, like literally grabbed me by the legs and just chucked me over. <laughs> Just chucked me over the wall, uh, and it honestly, like, it was the funnest time. And uh, I, I don't, I don't remember where we slept, and I don't remember really much else other than being chucked <laughs> over this wall against my will. Uh, and and then, like, in the morning, do you remember there was this weird, like, I don't know whether it was like a pagan or or some kind of like weird carnival thing, vi- thing going on. <laughs> I don't know, I was talking to my brother about it recently. he remembered more details, but um yeah that was a that was a really, really funny time, and you know one of the funnest things I've ever done, to be honest, so thank you for thanks for that, thanks for chucking me over the wall and making me do something rebellious <laughs> for once, and I just really wanted to know, you know do you have like a gig that really stands out for you, you know, one that you that you always go back to, that you always always remember. What what's a sort of what was one of your favorite gigs from that time?
0: Thanks, Jules. Um, yeah, those were great gigs back then, weren't they? Um, and I remember that night particularly well. I think actually the 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 show was at the Bull and Gate in two thousand and three, and we'd gone down. In our friend Marcus's VW. He said that he would drive. And we went down there. And we did the show. I remember the show being quite good. And for some bizarre reason. We had some friends who were down at Corfe Castle. Or staying in a house down there. Which is a a good trot from London. It's a good old stint in a car. Let alone an old VW bus. But for whatever reason. Come when we loaded out. And packed up the van. It was probably gone midnight we decided that would be a great idea to drive to Dorset to go and see these friends. Um, And then along the way, we broke down, I seem to remember. And because it didn't have seats in the back, the guy whose van it was thought it would be a bit dodgy if we we were all in the back of the van. So he called the AA. We all debussed and started walking down the motorway for, I think maybe... An hour or an hour and a half. It was a while. Whilst the AA had come out and fixed the van, etc. And then he came back along the motorway, picked us back up. And I think we finally rolled into Corfe Castle at around five, five thirty in the morning. Um, by this point we pretty much were all hung over. And our friends who had gone to visit were all asleep. Of course they were. It was half past five in the morning. Um, but if you've ever been to Corfe Castle, you'll know there's a big castle there. I mean, the clue is in the title. And we tried to rouse our friends. I think they, I think they got up in the end, and we just went into the castle. Yeah, I remember, I remember hauling you over a wall, Julie. Um, I mean, that was standard practice back that back in those days. Um, you know, breaking into castles, not hauling girls over walls. Um, it was a funny night, and when we left, you're right. There, was, there were Morris dancers outside the castle, which was slightly uneasy as we left. And I don't think we did sleep. I've kind of got the feeling that we just got back in the van and slept in the van and went home, which made it a really worth, worthwhile trip. But it's one of those trips that you do remember, and I think they're the key ones. Um, those trips or those shows they can all blend into one, but occasionally there's things that happen that are slightly out of the norm and they're the ones you remember. And if you can tell a story about an event or you can tell a story about something, then I think that that's living your life, isn't it? If you can't say, if you can't tell stories about events, then are you really alive? I don't know. So yes, Julie, you're very welcome um, for them memories and uh, I'm glad that we shared them together. Um so my favourite gig from back then, it's a tricky one, because we are going back to to like 2002, 2003, um, which was an exciting time for the band, because we did the Don Steps demo um, with with Julie, and we were starting to get better show offers. Um, ones that stand out from, from that period, I think were the first ferry boat show that we did, um, for Wombat Wombat, which I spoke to Annie about in the last podcast. I remember that being being amazing, partly because we were so excited to, to be offered a show by a proper promoter who was paying us, feeding us, and, you know, was putting on bands like Biffy Clyro and, and Miss Black America and bands that we thought were cool. So that was a good show. I remember that well. But other ones around that time were, we did a, birthday party or something in a village hall in Wolberswick and that will always stand out because it was the first time that I remember seeing people turn up to our show even though it was a private party and they were definitely not invited but they did turn up and sort of gate crashed this party and they were wearing see-through hoodies and they knew the words and were rapping along and that was pretty cool that was the first time in see-through I'd ever seen that so that one sticks out for that. And we also did a cover of The A-Team. I don't know why that's significant, but I remember it. Another really good one from that era was Greenpeace Fair. Um, I'd been going to that sort of mini festival for for, year, for a few years. And Flatty and I always used to, to get over there and go and watch bands. So it was great to finally play it. Um, I think there's a might even be a recording of it somewhere. I'm not sure. But I remember that being good, Greenpeace 2003. Um, so, yeah, they're my sort of favourite shows from that era. Actually, you mentioned the Half Moon in Putney. And that was a great show because it was the first time that we ever met our late friend, Chris Morgan, who worked for the BBC. And he was super ace. And he asked the most bizarre and wonderful questions to us that night. And I'm not going to go into it, but the guys in the band remember the questions. And it was just that will always stand out as an amazing show and purely just for meeting for meeting Chris and getting to know Chris. So. So, yeah, a few shows there from that era, but probably if I had to pick one, probably that first ferry boat show kind of felt like we were we were moving in the right direction.
5: Hey, Trig, it's Annie Catwoman from Wombat Wombat. As independent promoters in Norwich, Wombat Wombat supported See Through 27 from 2002 with gigs at various venues in Norfolk and beyond. This included our sister organisation, Musica, taking See Through to the Exit Festival in Serbia in 2006 for our first collaboration with the Norfolk and Norwich Side Association. Having had so many interactions with See Through, at gigs and randomly bumping into each other. It's tricky to pick a highlight or low light. Thanks for reminding me about the flatty incident at B2, by the way. And I'm still unsure if I made the right decision by not going to exit 2006, drawing on the lively second-hand tales of the 22-and-a-half-hour drive to and from Novi Sad in Paul Wombat's minibus with its self-opening sliding side door and various band members only having one pair of undies or peeking too early with Jerry Wombat on the pre-lunchtime plum brandy party trail or pranking involving impersonating the Serbian police. But I have a feeling I missed out on one hell of an adventure. Whatever. It's safe to say that when I think of C327, it's a life-affirming mashup of intense, edgy energy superb musicianship and having the best possible time, whatever that involves. Here's to the 20th anniversary gigs. So, Trig, my question for you is in two parts. Firstly, as the organisational force behind C327, what were your original ambitions for the band and to what extent have these been achieved? Secondly, and there's no need to hold back, what are C-327's current ambitions? Meow. The and out. Thanks, Trig.
0: No, thank you, Annie. And thank you for your very kind words, as always. Um, Annie's someone that's always had our back, really, ever since that first ferry boat show that I just mentioned. Her and the other wombats always made us feel part of a of a family, and it was always like a... It almost felt like home, doing a show for One One Bat, So we're forever grateful for that. Um, did you make the right decision not coming on that trip? Mm, probably not. I think you should have come. Would you have come back the same person? Probably not, but you'd have had fun, definitely. We'd have looked after you, Annie, you know that. So, uh, the original ambitions of the band. And that's a tricky question, actually. Because I guess most bands you start off especially in that era with an ambition or a goal such as getting a record deal or whatever it was back then. I think the original ambition it was really just to was just to play originally. we'd all come out of different bands and we'd obviously then been working on these bizarre tracks, which didn't sort of make much sense in a in a live environment, especially in two thousand and one. So I guess the original ambition was to, to see if we could do it live. That obviously changed as we started making different different tunes and putting out demos and, and getting decent shows. I think the ambition then was to to be able to do it full time. That's always been the ambition, I think, for everyone. Not really worried about money, never really worried about fame or any of that naff stuff. It's always been about, can we do it as a job? Um, you know, can we get to a point where we we don't have to go to work and we just have to get in a, a van and, and go and do it? The answer to that was no, we couldn't. <laughs> um, but that, I guess, that was the original ambition where, as the band started becoming more of a thing. Um, current ambition, now that's a very... That's a very easy question. I think right now it's all about trying to make the best music we can make as a a group, and I think that we've achieved that. I, I certainly have. I think we've made the best record that any of us could make, regardless of band. And I think the next record that we've already started, I think we're about four or five tracks in musically, um... Is it is is as exciting as this as this new record that we're about to release? So I think the current ambition really is to just continue making music as to the best of our ability. Obviously, do some shows. I think it'd be nice to to get back out there, uh, sort of grassroots kind of level, really. Sort of getting getting a splitter and and go and hit some venues and just hang out and. Chat to the guy with his dog in the corner and see if we can flog him a CD. There's something kind of appealing about that to me. So, your yeah, current ambition, I think, just continue making the best music that we can make, shove us in a van. And I think we're having the best time anyhow. We're living our best lives. So, that's the current ambition, just to do that c Twenty Seven are one of the most well-known and respected bands in our local area with members of the band going on to find success in other acts or within the music industry as a whole. Whilst natural talent can be credited for some of this success, there are other reasons behind the achievements that you guys have made. What would your advice be to those now starting out on the local scene? And Is there any advice that the younger you was given that you would like to pass down to the next generation? Wow, thank you, Darren. Um... C through 27 and success in the same sentence. I think you meant unsuccessful, um, but appreciate those words. Thanks, Darren. Um, if you didn't guess, that was Darren Steger Lewis, who was a previous guest on the podcast. Thanks for coming on, Darren. Um, advice for bands starting out. Well, I mean, the musical landscape in 2021 is a very, very different place from when we started and from even when we started See Through back in 2001. But the bit of advice I would give is just don't be local. Don't be village. Think think bigger. Try and put on the best show you can put on. I don't want to see a little tiny backdrop. I want to see a massive backdrop. I want to see a backdrop that's too big to fit in the pub. I want to see cool posters. I want to see... Video promos. Nowadays, people just are lazy. They set up a Facebook event and hope that people are going to turn up. Try and be something. Don't be a little band. You can still be a little band, but make yourself cool. Put on a show. Who's doing sound? Have you got someone that can come do sound for you that you can regularly use? Keep yourself sounding the same and, and sounding great. You can get someone who can get to know your sound and, and dial that in. Do you know someone who's good with lights? You know, decent lights can make or break a show for me. You could, you could be a dog shit band. But if I was to walk in a room and I see a massive backdrop and it sounds great and the lights look great and you're putting on a good show, I'm kind of going to forget that you're dog shit, um, which is probably how we've got away with it. But that's what I would say. Don't be local. And advice I've been given. Well, I remember one piece of advice which I always found funny. Um, was from a chap I work with now uh, a chap called Adam Perry who is the drummer in the Bloodhound Gang and the drummer in a band called A Uh, many years ago I was discussing with him a flight case I'd brought for a speaker cabinet and he was really into it because like him I'm pretty obsessed with flight cases and he was like it's wicked and I was like yeah but it doesn't fit in my car and he goes so get a van because then you'll feel like a proper band. And that kind of advice, although it seems a bit weird, it's kind of it's kind of true. A bit like what I just said, really, you know, be a be a band, you know. Having a turning up in a car is is fine. But turning up in a van with flight cases, all of a sudden you're gonna feel like the real deal. And if you feel like the real deal, you kind of then are the real deal. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know, that's that's a bit of advice that I was told. And I think it's kinda of cool. I'd like to see more of it. There's a lot of bands who just turn up and just do a floor show and, and think that's it. But just just be just be better. Ultimately, the most important thing really though is write good songs. There's a lot of covers bands. I don't care about covers bands. You know, I literally could I literally couldn't care less about covers bands. But original bands with good songs combined with combined with all them things I just said, really, you're getting me going. So, yeah, don't be local. Think big. Get yourselves the flight cases. Get yourselves a van. Get yourselves a front house guy. Get yourself some lights. Get yourself a backdrop. Think bigger than local. And write fucking good songs. Songs that connect with people. Then you're onto a winning formula, and I'll come and watch your band. So there you go. That wraps up my podcast and wraps up the series of 20 years of C327 podcast. Um, it's been Ace doing all episodes. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna miss it. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, thanks to everyone that's listened. Thanks to everyone that's ever come to watch C327. Thanks to everyone that's played in C327. And thanks to everyone that's going to buy the new record and come to the show in December at Lost Town Football Club 17th tickets are on sale two different tier prices you can get one where you get a limited edition see-through beer on arrival that's that's a winner get involved and we'll see you out there I hope to do another series of these podcasts with a different band next year but that'll be cool too um, so I look forward to not having to edit these podcasts And I'm looking forward to getting back writing the next see-through record, which I'm halfway through. So wish me luck. See you out there. Thanks again. I'm out.